Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 285. Today is April 14th, 2019. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, Shazam, here we are within a hair's breadth of a new record high on the S&P 500. Just four months ago, there was all kinds of gloom and doom. The market was down over 20%. There was fear and trepidation, and lo and behold, the markets climbed back up that wall of worry. We didn't even get a retest of the December lows, which virtually every pundit was predicting. And I likewise thought a retest was likely until it became farcical, where just every talking head was breathlessly predicting the inevitability that we had to have a retest. That's when I became skeptical and, I don't know, mid-January uh, sometime, you can check it out on YouTube, I put out a video showing some of the video clips of the talking heads and, and really trying to mock them and say, look, so many people are predicting a retest of the December lows that maybe they're not so likely. Well, we didn't end up seeing those, did we? And so that brings us back to where we are today near a record high. I'm going to just give you a little bit of commentary in today's episode. And I also want to uh, really make the main emphasis of today something I've been thinking about for a long time and something I've been trying to put together in such a way that it'll make a point. But um, I don't know, it, it won't be over the top. Anyways, what I'll be discussing today is the ongoing theme that I talk about here in the Wellsteading podcast about how you have to ignore much of what you hear in the media. I'm going to do it in a little bit different way, and I think the episode title is a good one, Talk is Cheap. We'll get to that in a minute. First, let me just give you a market update. And I'm going to say this at a really high level because nothing has changed. In fact, nothing has changed for nearly a year now. We've seen the market go through some drastic gyrations from a high in January of 2018 to multiple corrections ensuing over the coming months until the market finally bottomed out in June and started to recover, and then a market high in September of 2018, and then just before the election, around the 3rd of October, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell came out and said that the Federal Reserve is going to keep raising interest rates because they were a long way from neutral. That sent the market into a tailspin, and from October until December 24th, Christmas Eve, the market went down close to 20%. And then the beginning of January, Jerome Powell came out and said, ah, just kidding. Things look worse than we thought. We're going to back off. We probably won't raise the interest rate at all this year and maybe only once in 2020. Other central banks started to pile on with that dovish stance. The Chinese had already been talking about how they were going to re-stimulate their economy. They were once again backtracking on their banking sector reforms, allowing the banks to have lower cash reserves and make more risky loans. And of course, printing plenty of yuan to make sure that they could continue to build infrastructure projects, not only in China, but now also exporting that infrastructure build throughout the developing markets along what they're calling the One Belt, One Road strategy. And what happened? Well, predictably, the market turned around and has gone straight up since then. And that's where we are today. It hasn't changed and it won't change until the Federal Reserve gets back to raising interest rates or until oil prices or energy prices become significantly higher. And they're not right now. They're fluctuating in that 60 to $65 range. I personally think they're going lower because there continues to be a glut of energy with the amazing resurgence of the U.S. oil production that's come about because of what we call 
horizontal drilling and fracking, but the bottom line is it's all about automation. It's about how automation has been applied in the energy sector. And if you haven't looked at the amount of oil that the United States is producing, you need to do that. We're approaching uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, probably next year, of hitting 12 million barrels a day. You can forget about peak oil production. It's not going to happen anytime soon. The United States is truly in a renaissance era of being a major powerhouse in energy production. We're the number one producer of petroleum products. We're the lowest cost producer of natural gas. The United States is producing more energy now than they ever have in the past. That's one effect of automation and technology that's clear and present that's happening today. And these are examples of things that are going to be happening in the future. That's why ultimately, as cynical and contrarian as I am, I remain optimistic for the long-term future because technology is making things better. It's reducing the cost. And that's why the Federal Reserve is having such a hard time trying to hit their inflationary targets because we're actually in a world of deflationary pressures, not inflationary. Ah, but I digress. Let's focus on the market at hand. I just put out a video on Friday saying that I'm starting to get a little concerned about where the market is. I called it a Wall Street snow job because four months ago they were predicting gloom and doom. And today they're out there pumping up all these initial public offerings, IPOs on Lyft and Uber. And you, you see how the Lyft IPO was way oversubscribed. I had gotten a lot of requests uh, when that was about to come out where people were asking me to comment on it. I didn't get around to it. I will probably, in you know, the coming days or weeks, I'll probably put out an episode about IPOs because I haven't talked about that in a long time. Listen, I never buy IPOs. I'm not a momentum investor. I am not trying to look for the bigger fool to buy a stock once I've put my money into it. And I think generally that's what IPOs are, at least if you purchase them within the first, oh, at least the first six months, if not the first 18 months. But again, that's a topic for another day. Bottom line is we're seeing more irrational exuberance and enthusiasm coming into the marketplace. If you look at the investor sentiment over at the, the American Association of Individual Investors, you'll see that both the bull market sentiment and the bear market sentiment are both at extreme ends. I think the bulls are over 40% and the bears are just barely at 20. Now, there still are a lot of people in the middle and that remains true of the market. There's a lot of money on the sidelines and that's why I think this market does have farther to run. I think it's very likely that we could hit 3,000 in the S&P 500. A caveat to that, I said that last year just before things fell apart. That's where I think we're ultimately headed. Could we get to 3,100? Absolutely. But I do think it's a long shot this year. The reason that I'm very confident we could hit 3,000 in the S&P 500 is that earnings are probably going to come in right around $170. Now, I know a lot of you hear me talk about this at nauseum, but it is the facts and that's what we have to talk about. We have to look at the overall value, the underlying fundamental foundational value of whatever we're investing in. And then from there, once we establish the value and the fundamentals, then we can go on and start talking about trends and human nature and fear and greed and all the other things that most people like to spend their time on. But you have to first start by carving out if something is fundamentally valuable. And the earnings on the S&P 500, although they're slowing and people are starting to back away from using the term earnings recession because we're not in one of those now. We were in one of those in 2015 and 2016 and that's why I was very concerned back then. But we're not in earnings recession now. 
So I'm looking at us topping out on the S&P 500 somewhere around 3,000, a little above that, a little below that, but that's within you know three or 4% of where we are right now. And so the upside in the U.S. as a general market, I think is getting a little limited, and that's why I'm starting to back off and harvest some profits. I'm not gonna talk about that now. I've been putting out videos about selling covered calls, which is one strategy for exiting the market. And then of course, anytime I make a change to the model portfolio, which would be buying or selling something of substance, I blog about it over at my firm's website, investablewealth.com. I just put a notice out there on Friday, and if you're on the free email notification list, you got the notice that I sold a portion of my Disney holdings. I sold about 25% of Disney when it popped on Friday. The other 75% of it was already part of a covered call contract, and so I'll be working my way out of that over the coming month or so as well. And so the point I want to make here is that I am starting to take profits, but I'm not selling everything and running for the hills yet. I am still substantially invested in the markets broadly and also very heavily weighted in foreign stocks. And I'm not selling those positions and have no intent to sell those positions in the near term because I think they have another 10 to maybe as much as 30% to run from here. Okay, now on to today's main topic. And I just want to tee this up by saying that this is a continuing effort to where I try and get people to think for themselves. I come on the podcast. I tell you my opinions. I do that in video form. I do that at my blog post. I tell you about my 10 wealth building principles. These are all things that have worked for me. They may or may not work for you. Think about them, try them out. What works for you, use it, right? I don't think there's any one path to wealth. I know people that are rich that have become wealthy by being cardiologists. And I know people that are rich and have become wealthy by being carpenters. There isn't just one way, one method, one path. And that's why I get really skeptical about salesmen or the media or anybody that's just promoting one thing. I'm also very skeptical about the media picking out their elites and picking out the people that they always want to promote. And you'll see this time and again, and even not just the mainstream media, but it happens in alternative media where you just get this hero worship and everybody just starts parroting the party line. It's like the double speak that we hear in 1984 with George Orwell's story about how there should be no original thought, right? No original content. Everything is just the repeated narrative over and over again until the puppet masters try and change the narrative and then they repeat that over and over again and they instantly have amnesia and forget about what they said the day before. I'm constantly bombarded with listeners and with other people that come to me and say, hey, did you hear what this guy said? Or did you hear what that hedge fund manager said? Or did you hear what was said by blah, blah, blah? Right? It just never ends. And it's like, so what? Who cares what they said? They've been saying the same thing for 20 years it's always wrong, or it's very rarely accurate. How can they predict the future? Who cares what they said? That's generally my response. But people want to hero worship. They want to be lied to. They want to latch on to some type of security in a world that's random and full of uncertainty. And that's really your first problem in losing money in the stock market. You're trying to believe something that's not true. And it isn't that it's not true because it's a lie. It might just be untrue simply for the fact that no one has the right answers. And you have to accept that. That's where a lot of my perceptions come from. So am I contrarian? Am I cynical? Or am I just a realist? Am I just pragmatic? You draw your own conclusions on that. But here's what I wanted to do. Today, I wanted to show you just the blatant, uh, and I don't know if hypocrisy is the right word or if it's elitism 
or conceit or narcissism, uh, just self-bias. I don't know what the term is, right? I'm not smart enough and don't have a degree in sociology to come up with the right term. But what I'd like to do is encourage you to not believe the malarkey and the BS that is constantly coming out of the media. And this isn't from a left or a right perspective. It's not putting the Wall Street Journal against the New York Times or CNN against Fox News. They all have different agendas, but the fact of the matter is, is they all have agendas. They all have narratives and they're promoting these and the puppet masters will put talking heads and whatever messengers they think are most likely to influence you. They're going to put those people out there. They'll be authority figures and experts and celebrities and entertainers and economists and investors and politicians and judges, whoever they can parade in front of you to shape and mold your thinking. Now, I want to play a couple clips here, and I've thought long and hard about this because I could have taken some easy shots, but I wanted to play some clips here that are from the two most respected investors in the world. I'm talking about Berkshire Hathaway's Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. These people are pretty much held beyond reproach and represent the American dream and really just what's good about the capitalist system. Now, I'm not going to tear them down for that, and I'm not even going to say that they're not virtuous men that have done great things and worthy of our respect. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just pulling these guys out because it would be easier to take a cheap shot from just about anybody else. But because these two guys are held in such high regards. I want to play some audio clips of some malarkey that's come out of their mouths. And then I'm going to try and just shut my own big mouth and leave it at that and let you draw your own conclusions. Let's listen to Warren Buffett as he comments on the downright criminal action that took place a few years ago at Wells Fargo. Now you may remember that Wells Fargo had a corruption scandal going on and this affected them from the highest levels all the way down to their local salesmen that were falsely opening up bank accounts and credit cards for, for clients and all forms of shenanigans that were out and out federal violations, identity fraud, something that if you or I had done would have been a felony conviction for lying on bank records or misappropriating social security numbers. I mean, the charges would be infinite if it were you or I. In fact, if it happened to me as a licensed investment advisor, at a minimum, I would likely be fined and lose my license and perhaps would even serve jail time. Now, when it came to Wells Fargo, these things didn't happen. I don't recall anybody going to jail and certainly nobody in the upper echelons. Now, keep in mind that Wells Fargo is a major holdings of Berkshire Hathaway. And so what does Mr. Buffett have to say about the scandal? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a great bank that made a terrible mistake, you know, and, and every great institution makes if you employ 360,000 people like we do, or 280,000 like they do, but they made a particularly egregious mistake. I mean, this, is per, this was part of the culture. It was pervasive, and it lasted for years. It was a dumb incentive system, which when they found out it was dumb, they didn't do anything about it. Did you catch that? A dumb incentive program. Dumb. Dumb. This is coming from Warren Buffett. The man that really just never fails to get in front of a microphone and preach and pontificate and virtue signal. And yet when it comes down to a company that he is a major shareholder in and someone that could take action, he simply calls the felony criminal activity a dumb incentive program. 
Now, I'm not going to play the other part of his response where he obfuscates things and says that, oh, well, he really can't do anything about it because that he's only a passive owner. And because of Federal Reserve regulations, he would be prohibited from taking action against the matter. And listen, that's all baloney. And to the extent that any of that is true, what is also equally true is that he could use his bully pulpit, again, like he is fond of virtue signaling, he could get out there in the media he could criticize these people as a private citizen. He demand investigations that would put these criminals in jail, and yet he doesn't do any of that. He calls it simply a bad incentive program. You know, these are not bad people, just a bad incentive program. Baloney, malarkey, Warren Buffett, you should be ashamed of yourself. Now let's look over to Warren Buffett's right-hand man, Charlie Munger, Charlie knows better than this. Charlie usually has better behavior than Warren. He's less prone to get in front of a microphone and pontificate. But what does Charlie say about the situation at Wells Fargo? I think Wells Fargo will end up better off for having made those mistakes. Uh, any bank can make a lot of money by making a bunch of game year loans at higher interest rates or abusing the customers with very aggressive treatments. And of course, banks really shouldn't do that. And I think as a result of all the trouble, Wells Fargo's customers are gonna be better off for, for this event. And I think it's time for the regulators to let up on Wells Fargo. Did you hear that? You know, banks really shouldn't do that criminal activity, but hey, the customers are going to be better off in the long term and all oh, the federal regulators. No, they should just they should just let up on this. Nothing to see here. Don't look behind the curtain. No wire fraud. No mail fraud. No identity theft. No criminal. No felony activity here at all. Okay, okay. So I know some of you are probably saying, well, hey, hey, those guys, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, they're they're probably just, you know, they're probably just libertarian freedom-minded people that don't want government regulation. And they're probably lenient and lackadaisical to all these kind of things, right? Now, guess again. Let's listen to Charlie Munger and his opinion about Bitcoin. And I want to set this up by saying, and those of you that listen to the Wealth Studying Podcast, you know, I'm not a fanboy of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. But let's listen to what Charlie says about it. And I see an artificial speculative medium that people are buying just because they think they can sell it to somebody else at a higher price, even though it inherently has no intrinsic value. And so I regard the whole business as antisocial, stupid, immoral. Yeah, did you hear that? It's immoral. You know, what does he mean by immoral? How would he equate that? Immoral? Yes, Why immoral. Is that? Why? Why would you trade Suppose you could make a lot of money trading freshly harvested baby brains. Would you do it or would you say that's immoral? You wouldn't trade them, would you? Too, it's too, too, too awful a concept. Well, to me, Bitcoin is almost as bad. He equates Bitcoin with trading live baby brains. That's how immoral it is. And yet Bitcoin is a thing. It's an algorithm. It isn't controlled by any one person or any one organization, it's simply an algorithm that's used as a financial tool. And somehow, Charlie Munger finds that immoral.
But yet, when it came to Wells Fargo, a company that he's a major shareholder of and something that he could influence the outcome of, what did him and Warren say about that? Oh, why, just bad incentives. Good people, just bad incentives. A great bank. Oh, just some bad practices. But ultimately, it will be good for the customer. Are you kidding me? And these are two of the most beloved and respected investors in the world. And that's the kind of gobbledygook that comes out of their mouths. So, hey, here's the point. I don't really want to throw stones at these guys. Believe me, I live in a glass teeny house. The point I just want to make is, is that I don't think that people should hero worship or look to celebrities or the elite or anybody in the media to be their moral authority or to put their blind faith and trust in, whether it's investments or any other topic. You need to look to yourself. If you want to free up your mind, get out of the concentration camp of the media. I think if you do that, you'll be a lot happier and you can start that process by turning off most of the media.